Rick Holland was my preaching lab professor back in the mid-2000s. So, as I told the Sunday school class, if this goes badly, I can blame the lack of sleep or I can blame my old preaching professor. It's really a joy to be here. I've uh, known of this church since God called Rick and Kim here and their family and certainly learned a little bit more about it as two of their sons have come out to Boyce College where I was able to serve as a professor. And it's been such a joy to know them and to be led by them over the years. I woke up this morning in their basement and looked at some family photos that they had down there. And I was looking at these family photos with these three little boys that I didn't personally know when they were that age, but all of his sermon illustrations were about those boys when I was a freshman in college. And now I'm out at this camp for three days, and here is Luke on stage and John in the back, and they are leading and they're serving, and I know them from the college and have watched them grow and know all of the tears and the prayers and the instruction and the love that went into that. And I just have such admiration for you two, and I'm thrilled to be at this church. By the way, I don't think we need to maybe have a worship pastor, and I don't know that I need to steal Bob from you. If you guys will just all come down and sing every Sunday. (laughs) That was beautiful, and it was lovely to, to sing along with you. I actually received my own photo this week that reminded me of the family photos I saw this morning of the Hollands' young boys so many years ago. Cess Painetti, who does some camera work here and is a member here, I know from a ways back, and he came up to me last night and he said, hey, turn on the airdrop on your phone so he could pass some pictures along to me. And he proceeded to send me 12 pictures of my son Judah from seven years ago at a Dodger game in Southern California. Twelve pictures I had never seen of my little son. And I started looking through these and was blown away at how much he's grown, remembering that experience, the relationship that we have. I still remember uh, November 2007 with that same son. He was a bit younger then. I was standing in a courtroom in front of Judge John L. Henning in Monterey Park, California, in the children's court. And I stood with Judah beside me. He was not yet two years old. And with this little Ugandan boy right next to me, I raised my hand and I swore before the eyes of the law and a number of our friends and family members that were there as witnesses that I and my wife would forever treat him like a natural born child with all the rights and privileges of such a child, including an inheritance. And I remember sitting down with a sheet of paper in front of me and being given a pen with black ink and with Judah sitting on my lap, beginning to sign the bottom line of that document with my name, David A. Gunderson. And as I did it, my own little Ugandan son sat there in that courtroom on my lap and put his little chunky finger right on that line on the left side of it and began to trace that line with his finger under my name as I signed it. Neither he and maybe even I knew the depth of the relationship that we were promising in that moment that Cindy and I were making to him before God and these witnesses. 
But it is that relationship, the invincibility of that relationship in terms of our love for him, and anyone who's a parent understands what I mean, that forms the framework for the day-to-day relationship that we now have. Later on in 2011, we would adopt three more kids from the country of Rwanda. So our kids are 11, 10, 10, and 9, all within 23 months of each other. We're going to have four teenagers before we have another driver. So we're totally done for in a few years. And when I go on trips like these, say several years ago after those three other children came home, I felt so compelled when I was leaving to make it really clear that I was coming back. Because how would they know that unless I told them? They were four, four, and three when they came into our home, said they'd seen orphanage volunteers come and go. They had seen workers come and go. Is dad going to come and go? And I anticipate, if all goes well, what will take place tonight at George Bush Intercontinental Airport around 9 o'clock Central Time, your time. Prayerfully, I'll walk out to the curb and see a light blue 2007 Honda Odyssey, probably with the windows rolled down because that's what my wife likes to do when I come up to the van from the airport and kids begin screaming, Daddy, Daddy! And I start screaming what I scream, Buddies! And the joy of that relationship is evidence of something secure and stable. And that's just in human terms. If my kids don't know that they have that kind of stability in their relationship with me, what does that do to their ongoing daily relationship with me? If they don't have that kind of security. This morning, I want to preach a topical message about one of the central doctrines of salvation that is meant to give believers an infinitely greater kind of security in the love of God for us that when it sinks into our hearts, transforms us from the inside out and compels us to live for him with a sense of deep confidence that to our amazement, he forever loves us. And that doctrine is called union with Christ. And that's the simple title for this message, Union with Christ. If it's not already apparent what that means, because it's kind of a technical term, I'll be explaining it as we go along and touching on, very briefly, a number of different passages that highlight what this means. That Christians, those who have trusted Christ, have union with Christ. When we think about our walk with God as Christians, we often start with our communion with Christ. And I don't mean the Lord's Supper, I mean our daily ongoing fellowship with Him, our devotions, our prayer life. And that's very important. Those disciplines are very important. But we often start with communion, that is, our daily walk with God, instead of beginning with our union with Christ, which is the permanent, unchanging unity we have with him through Jesus Christ that creates the stable, unchanging framework for the ongoing walk. 
And there are a lot of bad things that happen, even if they're subtle things that happen, when you put your ongoing daily walk with Jesus in front of your permanent union with Jesus. If you put your daily walk with Jesus as the basis for a permanent union with him, what is that going to do to a person? It's going to mean that however you're doing today, however you do tomorrow, however you're doing with all the ups and downs of your emotional life and your spiritual life, if you're up, God loves you, and if you're down, he doesn't. If you're up, you've earned a relationship with him today, but if you're down, you've lost that relationship. I have to tell my kids all the time, I'm always going to love you. I want to tell them that. I want them to know that. But when you put the ongoing daily relationship with God as the barometer for whether or not you have this union, and you do that all through your life, you can end up in a very dangerous place. A restless spirit of performance and earning God's favor every day again. Spiritual insecurity. Or if you're doing well, legalistic pride that somehow it looks like you've earned a better covenant with God than you had the day before. If our unity with Christ wavers every day along with our wavering spiritual devotion, we'll never find stability. What would be like, what would it be like to cultivate a lifelong romantic relationship without a marriage? What would it be like to build a lifelong business partnership with no contract, no document, no promise? How would it feel to be an adopted son with with no permanent declaration of sonship? We'll see how it goes, kid. Maybe you'll stay, maybe you won't. Better keep your act together. We need to recognize the permanent union, oneness that we have with Christ so that we can constantly renew our daily communion with Christ in a way that gives life. So let me start here. I'd like to start with basic definitions. Basic definitions. What is union with Christ? John Murray wrote this. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So every gift of salvation that we enjoy has been given to us, the Bible says, in Christ and with Christ and through Christ. Can you turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 1, And look at verse 3, and listen to the claim that the Holy Spirit makes through the Apostle Paul. How do all the rich, diverse blessings of salvation come to us as Christians? Paul says it in a summary fashion in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Reading from the English Standard Version. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How has he blessed us? In Christ. A lot of our theology is in the prepositions. In, with, by. We're saved by grace, 
through faith. We are blessed here in Christ. Those tiny little prepositions have a ton of theological power and meaning that when we as Christians understand them, it transforms our thinking and transforming our thinking transforms our lives and our relationships and everything else about us. So what does it mean to be in Christ? In Christ. That's what we're seeking to answer. And if you ever want to do a pretty exciting, fascinating, eye-opening exercise, I had students do this in my classes every year at Boyce College. We did this exercise. We won't do it today because we don't have time. Read through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and underline in your Bible or jot down on a piece of paper every time those three chapters mention a believer being in Christ or being joined to Christ or being with Christ. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you'll see it everywhere else in the New Testament too. Union with Christ. And this is what it means, that by grace, through faith, God joins a sinner to Christ and makes that sinner one with Christ so that Christ takes that sinner's guilt upon himself so that that sinner's forgiven. And Christ gives his resurrection life to that sinner because when Christ raises from the dead and you're in him, what happens to you? Well, you rise from the dead as well. Every blessing we have is through union with Christ. It means this. What's true of Christ becomes true of you. Not his divine nature and not his prerogatives as God, but what's true of him, that he's completely righteous. God views you that way as righteous. What's true of him, that he is God's son, becomes true of you in him. You are God's child. You don't become God. You don't become Jesus, but you become one with Christ. That's the basic definition. But second, I want to address some easy misconceptions so that we don't get this wrong. The basic definition is important. Here are some easy misconceptions. Union with Christ is not these three things. It's not fusion. We're not fused to Jesus where we become the same as him. It's not absorption into Christ. We're not absorbed into him so that we lose our individuality, where we don't have any personhood anymore. But it's also not just an emotional connection with Christ where we're one with him and that kind of vaguely means that we share in his values, we care about what he cares about, we love the people he loves. It's just kind of a psychological unity. It's more than that. It's not fusion with Christ. It's not absorption into Christ. And it's not just an emotional connection with Christ. So what is it? If it can be hard to understand and easy to misunderstand, does the Bible give us any clarity? And one thing I love about the Bible, among many things I love about the Bible, is that it is clear. So what is union with Christ? Let me offer third some clarifying illustrations of what this union means. And I know that we're treading in some deep theological waters here, but they're very sweet waters once you learn to drink them. I think there's three main ways to explain something. Tell me what it is, tell me what it's not, and then give me an illustration. We're going to do number three here. I want to provide some biblical illustrations for this. 
None of these illustrations can exhaustively communicate what union with Christ is, but each of them offers a fresh angle so that we can understand it better. Have you ever been to the eye doctor? I went recently to get new contacts, and they have you sit down in the chair, and they bring over that circular thing. I don't even know what you would call it. I have no idea what the word is. Maybe there's someone here that could help us after and let me know what that is. And they click through the different lenses on the way to clarity to figure out what your prescription needs to be. These illustrations kind of click through those lenses on the way to clarity. We stack up these lenses and it becomes more clear. Here are some illustrations of our union with Christ. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son is an illustration of our union with Christ. This is in John 17, verses 20 to 23. Jesus prays that those that believe in him may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. (laughs) The funny thing about this point is I'm trying to explain a concept, a complex concept by using the Trinity as the analogy, the clarifying analogy. Probably a foolish thing to do in speaking, except that Jesus does that exact thing. As I and my Father are one, he says, I'm praying that believers would be one with me and with us. That's an astounding claim. Another illustration that Scripture gives. These are not ones I'm coming up with. These are in Scripture. The relationship between Adam and humanity. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And basically, the Bible teaches that you can break human beings into two groups— Those who are unified to their forefather Adam and are condemned like he was condemned because he represented us when he sinned and we following him also are sinners or those who have been united to Jesus Christ. The Bible calls the last Adam or a second Adam. And by virtue of our union with Jesus, we're given the life that he enjoys by virtue of his righteousness and by virtue of him forgiving us our sins. The relationship between Adam and humanity is an illustration of the relationship of a believer with Christ. Now, I know some of you are thinking, this guy should have stayed, he should have been a professor and stayed there. Because this is not really clarifying. You just tried to explain union with Christ by the Trinity and then by the relationship between humanity and Adam. And you think that this is now clear? Well, not yet, because we're still clicking through the lenses. The relationship between husband and wife is another biblical illustration of the believers and the church's union with Jesus. Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31 A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. That's one of my favorite four words in the Bible. Yes. 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, which means every marriage is a walking picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, which is why it's vital to fight in the right way for our marriages and for the biblical health of our marriages because they illustrate the oneness that Christ enjoys with his church. It's a mysterious and intimate covenant promised, meant to be permanent, one flesh relationship between a husband and wife that illustrates this doctrine. But we get even more down to earth, quite literally down to earth, because another illustration the Bible uses is a vine and its branches. A vine and its branches illustrates what our oneness or unity with Christ is like. John 15, verses 1 to 5. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he talks about the branches abiding in the vine. Is a vine one with its branches? Yes. In a life-giving, sap-flowing, organic relationship that bears fruit from the branch. That's an agricultural illustration of how the believer is one with Christ. Then, the relationship between a head and its body is another New Testament illustration of our union with Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Christ is said to be the head of the church and Christians as the church are the body connected to that head. So as a head and its body are one, Christ and his church are one. That is a union. We all know that a sure way to kill someone is decapitation because there is such a union between head and body that there can be no life in the body if it is severed from the head. This is a picture of union with Christ. And then finally, the relationship between a temple and its stones is a construction-type picture of union with Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, So then you, who are far from God, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And listen to the preposition again. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the relationship between a temple and its stones is an image, picture for our union with Christ. I remember when I first went out to California going to services at Grace Community Church. I think it was about a 3,500-person sanctuary. And 
I was a college student, so I had college friends. And one of the things about that auditorium was they had canned lighting all throughout, dozens and dozens of lights in that sanctuary. And when a girl got engaged, you could often pick it out if you were to sit a row or two behind her because the girls that got engaged in the first, second, third, fourth service after they got engaged, you would find them in the worship service beforehand or sometimes during doing this. Because those lights would shine off of the facets of that new diamond that she possessed, and she would be enjoying from all kinds of different angles what that ring looked like. And you could sometimes sit there and look up, and you didn't even know really who it was. Oh, looks like that girl got engaged. (laughs) That's what these illustrations are meant to do for us, to help us see that there is a promise that's been made, and we are to look at that promise from all the angles that Scripture presents with us because it brings such joy, delight, comfort to our hearts, and it changes our lives forever. So let me now, after we've given some clarifying illustrations, walk through a very quick overview of some salvation doctrines that are related to union with Christ. And this is why I want to do this. Last summer, I took an unforgettable seven-day rafting trip through the Grand Canyon. And it was heavily sponsored by a Christian ministry so that, don't mean to make you jealous, but I paid $400 for the trip and a plane ticket to Las Vegas where the group met, and that was it. And we had a seven-day rafting trip. All the, everything was covered. All the supplies provided. Two boatsmen and others that were helping We had Christian geology professors who were there to teach through the formation of the canyon, Old Testament professors who were there to talk about creation and Genesis 1 and 2 and the flood. It was fascinating. And Christian leaders and men from all over the world who gathered together for this event. We had our meals on sandbars during the day. Now I'll really make you jealous. They said at the beginning that we should take our watches off and take our phones put them in the bottom of our bags and not look at them again for seven days and go on river time. Because we were on the river the entire time. The guides had already predetermined all of our launch points and our landing points for the 168 miles or so that we were going to travel in seven days. Meal times were just whenever they said we would have a meal. We literally would ask Joe, the Cal Berkeley graduate with board shorts and long hair, who I feel like honestly has spent four lives on that river. He was such a fascinating guy. Hey, Joe, what time's dinner going to be? He'd go, around dinner time. Time didn't matter. And then at the very end of that trip, we camped on a final sandbar, and in the morning, a helicopter flew through the canyon, a six-seater, landed right next to us, and we, in groups, were helicoptered out of the Grand Canyon to now get the aerial view. And I learned that there are two ways to see the Grand Canyon, from the river and from the rim. We've been looking at union with Christ from the river, but I want to go to the rim and do a brief chronological walk through all the salvation blessings that a Christian enjoys by God's grace through faith, through our union with Christ. This will be quick. You were chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 4, just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
That means when God freely chose us to be saved, he chose us in Christ. He chose us in union with Christ. In other words, from before the beginning, this union has been planned. You were forgiven in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Do you hear those commands that are so hard to keep, to be tender-hearted towards someone who's mean-hearted toward you? How do you do that? As God in Christ forgave you. How does that work? When a believer is joined to Christ in salvation... Christ takes the guilt of that believer's sin down to the grave with him. And now that believer's sins and the debt that he owed because of those sins has been canceled, which means you're forgiven in Christ through union with Christ. You were made righteous in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, you hear that preposition in all the time? In him, we might become the righteousness of God. If I'm a sinner and Jesus is righteous, both of which are not conditional statements, those are true. I am a sinner and Jesus is righteous and I'm joined to him and he takes my sin and I have his righteousness then before God, I am seen as righteous. How freeing is that? How motivating is that? You were made righteous in Christ. God treats us as though we lived the righteous life of Christ and treats Jesus as though he had lived our sinful lives worthy of condemnation. And it's so important to splash around in this river and a helicopter over this canyon so that we grasp this is greater than the seven wonders of the world. You were created in Christ, Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. How does God create a dead person? Well, he joins them to an invincibly living person, Jesus, and After Jesus dies, he raises Jesus from the dead. And for one with that person being raised from the dead, then we too are going to be raised up with him and recreated. We're created in Christ. You were born again in Christ. You're like, I get the point. There's more canyon to see. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, you were born again in Christ. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're united to Jesus, and when he rises from the dead, we rise in the present age spiritually with him, so we're born again and made new, and one day we will rise again with him physically and be made immortally new. You were adopted in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Here's the basic logic. Jesus is God's son. You are united to Jesus, so you are God's child. 
You were made heirs in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We're united to the one who will receive the full inheritance from his father in the future, so we too will receive that inheritance. This hits me differently because I have held up my hand in separate courtrooms and promised that I would treat these four children with all the rights and privileges of natural-born children, including inheritance. And that's exactly the two words that were used, comma, including inheritance, because that's what it means to be a child permanently. You're made heirs in Christ. You will die in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14 and 16. The dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus comes. That means Christians who have died have not had their union with Christ severed at death. Let me tell you one reason why that's incredibly important to me. Because I'm going from a very youthful college ministry working with students who have significant issues, yes, but most of whom are not facing death. And at my candidating visit to Bridgepoint Bible Church in Houston, there sat before me at a lunch 110 saints over the age of 60. And I want to be helpful as a shepherd and as a young man. And I don't want to walk into hospital rooms and stand next to deathbeds and think that I can just say some nice pleasantries and comfort a believer who's about to cross the Jordan with all of the potential anxieties and fears and wonderment that that can create. I want to be able to lovingly communicate something that they can take with them. And the main thing I can communicate is that if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you die, you will still be in Christ. That union will not be severed, even by death. You will rise in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. You will rise in Christ. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Romans 6, Paul says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That means believers are going to physically be resurrected from the dead through our union with Christ. Why? How does that work? Well, we're in Christ, and you can't raise a bucket from a well without also bringing up the water in that bucket. We are in Christ. So when he rises from the dead, we too are on that trajectory to rise from the dead like water in a bucket is going to, every time, come up in the bucket from the well all the way to the top. And finally, you will reign with Christ. This is 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We will reign with him. Jesus is going to reign over a new kingdom in a new world. And scripture promises that those who are one with him by faith will reign with him. 
Do you see how there is this chronological march through the doctrines of salvation from before the beginning of time when we were chosen in Christ to when God declares us righteous because we're unified with Christ. He adopts us as his child in Christ. He gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We will die in Christ. We will rise with Christ. We will reign with Christ. And it's unfortunate I'm running into a wall because... This oneness extends beyond the reaches of time. It's a beautiful flyover. And it's an incredible doctrine to see, both from the river and from the rim. So, what are some personal implications of this? Here are some personal implications. And here's the main thing I would hope you would walk away with in terms of a personal implication. Let me ask you a question. How does the Bible command a Christian to grow in terms of sanctification? How does the Bible command you to grow? I think a lot of us, I certainly instinctively feel this way on my own, feel like the main message of the Bible to me in terms of my growth is this. Become who you should be. There's the standard. Become who you should be. Get bigger, faster, stronger spiritually, work really hard, become who you should be. Now, that is part of the message of the New Testament. We are exhorted to eagerly, diligently, daily pursue a path of growth that leads to us looking like Jesus in the future. We are called to pursue that. But the main burden of the New Testament is actually this when it comes to your growth. Not become who you should be, but be who you are. Be who you are. You are united with Christ. You have new life in him. God has made you righteous in him. So be righteous. Be who you are. Don't be someone you're not. Be who you are. God has established permanently this relationship and a believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ is eternally secure, which doesn't lead a real Christian to coast. It leads a real Christian to say, I know who I am in Jesus and I want to become that practically in real time. Be who you are, not just become who you should be. Here are three ways that implication fleshes itself out of being who you are. So think for a moment with me. You died with Christ, so you are dead to sin. The Bible teaches that baptism is an external picture of an internal reality. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It doesn't wash away our sins. But it's meant to be an external sign of something that happened internally. What is that? You go down into the water, which pictures your death with Jesus. And then you get brought back up out of the water, which pictures your resurrection to new life because you're united with Jesus. And the idea is that when you go down into the water, you leave your old sinful self behind. And when you come back up out of the water, it's an illustration of how you are now supposed to leave that person dead and live as a new person. You died with Christ, so act dead to sin. I think every Christian needs to learn to have their old self play dead. 
When sinful temptations come knocking at your door, and you know that is the old you, the old sinful you that God crucified with Christ and wants to be contrasted with the new you he's raised from the dead, you have to look at that old self and say, no, you're dead, act like it. You're dead, act like it. That's not me anymore. And we have to tell ourselves this because no one else is going to tell us this. Like YouTube is not going to tell us this. Your newspaper's not going to tell you this. Friends you get together with weekly at lunch that aren't Christians are not going to say this. We have to embrace this union with Christ. You died with Christ, so you're dead to sin. Don't be who you were. Be who you are. A second personal implication. You rose with Christ, so you have new life. The other part of baptism. Your old self dies with Christ. Your new self rises with Christ. This is who you are, the person standing upright, unified with Jesus, a new creation, born again. Act like that person, not like that person. Be who you are. You rose with Christ, so you have new life. Be who you are. And third, I've said it a couple times already, but I repeat it to my kids, and I'm still a kid, and you're still a kid in God's family, so I'll repeat it to you. Christian, you were adopted in Christ, so you're God's child. If you have trusted Christ, you've been adopted into his family by union with him, and you're not just a pardoned criminal, you're an adopted child. Far too often as Christians, we stop at being forgiven, which is an incredible gift in and of itself, and do not add on to that adoption that we've been brought into God's family in a way that makes us irreversibly secure. You're God's child, so act like it. I remember once asking a class of mine, this is one of my favorite exercises, I said, all right, I want you to tell me what your parents used to say to you. I asked a class of 40 students this once, a spiritual life dynamics class. I want you to sit for a moment and think about what you remember your parents telling you. And the answers were hilarious. A young man said, my parents just said, don't be stupid. <laughs> don't be stupid. Another guy said, my mom would joke with me when I was older. Hey, if you go out and decide to run off with some woman, make sure she's saved. I was her joke with him, driving that point home. And another girl, I never remember this, said, every time I crossed through the doorframe of my house to go from inside the house to outside where I was going to wherever I was going, her parents would always say to her, remember whose you are. And I said, I bet when you cross through a doorframe, especially when you're leaving your residence where you live now. I bet you think about that a lot, don't you? And she said, yes, I do. Remember whose you are. And that's not just a statement of personal responsibility. Hey, remember whose you are and don't embarrass us all like we know you're always tempted to do. It's actually far more glorious and deep than that when you get to the gospel, which is remember that you belong to God through your union with Jesus Christ. Remember that and then go act like that. Remember whose you are and be who you are. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now let me tell you, just in conclusion, a few attitudes that this will slowly affect in your life. Here's one. You'll have a settled identity. If you know that you're one with Christ, then you don't have to strive to build some new identity reputation for yourself. You have a settled identity in him, and you live in a secure way out of that. You develop what I call humble confidence. Humble confidence. Not arrogant confidence and not humble uncertainty, but humble confidence. Why are you humble? Because you're a sinner condemned to death like I'm a sinner condemned to death. Why are you confident? Because you know the love of God for you in Christ is so permanent, so based on his grace and mercy, that you are confident in his love and you walk around like a secure person, not an insecure child. I remember when some of my children came home, it was so painful. It was so hard for them to respond to us in love because they hadn't had anyone consistent in their life love them and say they were used to only responding to people that passed by them. My wife sometimes wouldn't get a hug for weeks and weeks, but my child would run up to, I remember this very vividly, the shoe salesman at the sporting goods store and latch onto that person. Some of us are like that when we think about love. We don't know and aren't confident God loves us, so we're looking for everybody else's approval and love around us. When you believe in your union with Christ and know this, it produces humble confidence. It also produces a unified family because it's not just you that are one with Christ and you that are one with Christ and you that are one with Christ, but you together that are one with Christ. So you are a family covenantally bound together, one with Jesus, which means you're not supposed to leave each other, not supposed to hate each other, not supposed to stay distant to each other because you're one with Christ. Any more than an arm can run away from a leg without calling it amputation. One with Christ. You also then have a holy calling. If you know that you are one with Christ and when, wherever you go, you are in that sense bringing Christ with you, that affects what you do with the body that you have, for example. Because you don't want to bring Christ into sin. Not that you can make him guilty or cause him to sin, but with that mysterious union, you don't want to bring the holiness of that union into sin. Paul uses this exact argument in 1 Corinthians 6 and says, basically, if you're united with Christ, how could you take your body and sin sexually with your body if you're one with him? It's unthinkable, which is what sin is supposed to be. You have a holy calling. And finally, you have an invincible future. An invincible future. If you're one with Christ, and Christ has an invincible, untouchable, unkillable future, because he's raised from the dead, never to die again, that too is your future. And you know what that lets a Christian do? It lets us completely give ourselves away in the present, because we are not trying to get something out of this present life. We have an invincible future through our union with Jesus Christ, a perfect inheritance, so this life you can give 
all of it away for Jesus and for the love of other people. And whatever happens to you is fine because you'll die in Christ and you'll rise in Christ and you'll live forever with Christ. So what kind of investment can you make now if that's true? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I pray that as you continue walking through this series of a closer look at your glorious Christ, that this can be a framework through which you can see the glory of your salvation from the river of the details and from the rim of the beautiful things God has done across time to save a group of people like this. Let me pray.